1: Welcome back to week two of our uh, the Quarantined Church series. Uh, In this series, uh, we're looking through over a five-week period, four letters that Paul wrote uh, that we often refer to as the prison epistles. Last week, we looked at Colossians. This week, we're focusing on Philemon. In future weeks, we'll be focusing on the book of Ephesians and the book of Philippians. And all four of these books were written during a two-year period when Paul was stuck in his house. He was under house arrest. He was a prisoner of Rome. He was in the city of Rome. And in the midst of that, in the midst of the paralyzation of not being able to be a missionary as he had before, he writes these letters to churches that others are leading that he had a hand, many of them, in starting. And he's writing them, hearing about the problems that are going on. Some of these people have sent care packages, they've sent gifts to Paul, they're checking in on him, and when they're coming to check on him, they let him know the story as he's interested to know what's wrong, what's going on at Colossians, how can I be of help? And he writes these letters, and today's uh, letter that we're looking at, Philemon, is another one of those letters. Uh, This is a short letter. It's more like a personal letter that was written from Paul to a man named Philemon. Now, usually when I reference a a Bible verse in my sermons, I'll usually mention the name of the book, the number of the chapter, and then the number of the verses that I'm reading. This morning's a little different because there's no chapters. There's one chapter. It's 25 verses. So when I refer to these verses, I'm going to refer to it as Philemon 1 or Philemon 24. And so don't be confused by that. That's just because there's one chapter and there's 25 verses. Uh, This letter is, uh, is a really big deal, the book of Philemon. This letter actually changed the course of history, and it was written from house arrest, a situation much like many of us are experiencing right now. In 2013, the world's foremost New Testament scholar by many standards, uh, a man named N.T. Wright, uh, wrote a 2,000-plus page book on uh, the letters, the writings of Paul, Paul and his ministry. And uh, in that Uh, book, which I have on my shelf. I I haven't read it, but it looks very impressive. Uh, I want to guarantee you on my shelf. Uh, Where would you expect N.T. Wright to open his uh, 2,000-page volume on the Apostle Paul and all that he wrote? I don't know about you. I, I think the place I would go first would be the book of Romans. Romans has, has, has had such an impact on the history of Christianity, particularly over the last 500 years or so, because Martin Luther was greatly impacted before the Reformation by this letter of Romans. Uh, The book of Romans uh, was the reason Martin Luther led the Protestant Reformation because God had really impacted him through the message of grace, the righteousness of God that he was able to receive through its pages. And so because of Romans and because of Luther's impact on us as Western Christians, we've often read Paul through the lens of Romans, this great doctrinal piece to the church at Rome uh, with all these, I mean, it's a great study and we'll do that another time. But N.T. Wright, when he writes this 2,000-page-plus volume on Paul, doesn't begin in the book of Romans. He actually starts in the book of Philemon, which is pretty surprising. He begins these 2,000-plus pages in this tiny book that most of us probably forget about. And those pages on Philemon that I read at the beginning of this volume make me wonder, how would Christianity have been different? If for the past 500 years we would have read the gospel centrally through the book of Philemon rather than the book of Romans. We'll talk about that a little bit more this morning. Let's pray as we open God's word and open to the book of Philemon together. Oh God, we, we, we lay our requests before you at your feet. and We wait in anticipation of what you will do. We have prayed through our singing this morning already. Our elder David Bruce has led prayers on our behalf, and we know that you've heard those, God. And this morning we pray again. We come before you, we ask you, we petition you to speak to us in this moment through this small letter that was written to a Christian nearly 2,000 years ago. And yet it's been preserved because the church believes there's a message in this book for our time and our place, and we are reminded, we uh, we are heartened to know that This letter that was written has shaped and changed the world, and it was written from situations just like ours. And so, if we wonder, God, if we can make a difference in the world in the the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of quarantine, a book like this reminds us that it is possible through your power. So, God, this morning, I pray that you would stir dreams and imaginations and visions, that you would stir into our hearts an imagination of how we can change the world, even from moments like this when we're wondering how that can be done. Because these words, these 25 verses, have changed the world once. And I believe you still want to change the world again through them. So I pray this morning you would pour through me the gift of preaching. So that Christ would be formed in our hearts. And it's the name of Jesus, the Christ, that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, the book of Philemon's is is odd. Like I said, it's short. It's short. It seems like a personal letter from Paul, which you wonder, why is this personal letter getting put in the Bible? This letter never mentions the cross. It never mentions salvation. So how did this letter make its way into our Bible? Well, as I said before, Paul is under house arrest when he writes this letter, and the recipient of the letter is a man named Philemon. That's the reason for the title of the book. Paul's writing it to a guy named Philemon, who Paul seems to have brought to faith years earlier. Uh, Philemon owes Paul something, it seems, as you're reading this letter. In other words, Paul is writing to this guy named Philemon who happens to be a Christian slave owner. Which seems like it should be an oxymoron, right? Christian slave owner. But it took nearly 1,800 years, or over 1,800 years, after the writing of this letter, for slavery to be done away with even in our own country. In those days, slavery was a terrible institution in the Roman Empire. But it differed in some key ways from slavery in America, as we have known it, from 1419 to 1865. Slavery in ancient Rome wasn't based on race. That's not how it was decided who would be slaves and who wouldn't be. And in those days, uh, by the age of 30, most slaves were actually able to be freed at that point. They were often well educated, actually held important positions. Rome didn't allow slave owners to separate families, as is common in the American experience. Slaves were allowed to own things, they were actually paid wages for their work in many cases. But there are some things that are comparisons that should give us pause when we read a letter like this and would make us wonder about Paul's instructions. Slaves in those days were considered like cattle, they were property, they were like a tool to be used in the midst of fields and other tasks that slave owners would have had for them. And there was a great threat to running away in those days. There wasn't much protection for a slave. And so in no way am I defending the practice in those days. I'm just trying to, in some ways, clarify a little bit of the difference between those days and today. So Onesimus is the name of the slave who this book is uh, written about. It's written to Philemon, but Onesimus is a slave who either left or escaped from his master. And Philemon somehow winds up interacting with the Apostle Paul while he's under house arrest. And he becomes a follower of Jesus thanks to Paul. There's something about their interaction that causes Onesimus, this slave, to make a decision to follow Jesus. So either Onesimus happened to run into Paul just by happenstance, with the Holy Spirit's converging them together, or Paul was somebody that Onesimus knew about and trusted to maybe be a mediator between him and his slave master whom he had left behind. But runaway slaves were at great risk in those days, as I mentioned. We have examples of runaway slaves being sold to gladiator games for sport. At times they were beaten so badly they couldn't walk again. Slaves, in some cases, when they ran away were crucified in those days. Others had the letter F branded on their foreheads as a reminder that, uh, that they were fugitivists or fugitives. And based on the names found in the books of Philemon and Colossians, the book we studied last week, it seems likely that these two letters were written by Paul from prison, and he sends these two letters with a guy named Epaphras and Onesimus, the slave, to deliver these letters to the church at Colossae. So you get the picture here? Both of those letters are written, they're they're delivered to Colossae and perhaps some churches around the area. And and so this slave and the founder of the church, Epaphras, they take Paul's letter, whom they've been visiting. And they're supposed to carry these letters back to the church uh, around Colossae somewhere where Philemon is a slave owner who's wondering where his slave has gone and who's going to be in the church when these letters are read. So why two letters? While, while Philemon doesn't mention the gospel or the cross, well, the other book that's being sent along, Colossians, communicated the gospel clearly to the church. Last week we talked about it, right? That Jesus plus anything is heresy. Paul's trying to remind them, you don't need to add anything to Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the gospel. He's the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages, Paul writes. But it's now revealed, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And when you were dead in your sins, God made you alive in Christ. Yes, that book, Colossians, powerfully communicates the gospel in this clear sense in those chapters of Colossians. The gospel, though, also requires a certain kind of life. Paul sends this second letter because Paul will not allow the simplicity of the gospel to drown out the implications that the gospel means for our behavior and our life together. And if you listened closely to Colossians last week, you saw that actually there are some commands in there. There's some clear sense about how we're to act as Christians. And if these letters were actually sent together, you can hear hints in Colossians that Paul's going to pick up on in this specific instance to Philemon, the slave owner, about Onesimus' slave. So listen with both of those things in mind uh, as I read from Colossians 3, verse 10 and following. "And, And have put on the new self, Paul writes, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Now, I would imagine there's some tension as Paul delivers this letter to Onesimus the slave and says, would you and Epaphras carry this back to your slave owner? I'm sure Onesimus has some questions if that's such a good idea. Remember, Onesimus left his master. His life was on the line when he chose to run away from Philemon. But when these letters from Paul are read in the presence of the entire church... Paul's explanation of the gospel requires Philemon to see Onesimus differently than he'd ever seen him before. According to Colossians 3 verse 11, in the church of Jesus Christ, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, uh, and then he gets to this phrase, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Now what could that statement mean in the midst of a Roman society where where slavery was normal? What was Paul supposed to do or what was Philemon supposed to do now that Onesimus is returning home? See, that statement in Colossians chapter 3 about uh, neither slave nor free and the same statement that's like it in Galatians 3 verses 27 and 28 are two of the first occurrences that we have available to us anywhere in all literature that talks about the equality of human beings. That there's no difference between the differences that are seen in that time and that culture. These are the, some of the first egalitarian statements about the freedom and the equality of all people and they're in our Bibles. So it's easy to second-guess why Paul doesn't call for an abolition of slavery in the first century. And I'm not here to defend Paul's reticence to speak more boldly about needing to get rid of slavery in his letters. But if it weren't for Paul and the Jesus movement that followed, the abolition of slavery would have never become a reality without people that are reading these scriptures, people like William Wilberforce and other Christians in our own land. Now, many were set against it. But many read passages like this and realized what was demanded. See, what Paul is saying here in the midst of that Roman society in the first century is revolutionary. What's at stake when it comes to Philemon and Onesimus? is isn't just a guy, uh, Onesimus, trying to get out of punishment. What's at stake here is the gospel itself. It's not enough for Paul to announce the equality of Jews and Gentiles, masters and slaves. The church has to put that kind of equality on display to the world around it. And that's still the role of the church. And we've still got work to do. These two letters reflect two important values. As they come delivered to that church there to be read, they're reflecting two different things. Colossians is reflecting that our orthodoxy matters. It matters that we believe correctly. It matters that we don't add things to Jesus to present the gospel to others. It's Jesus alone. He is all sufficient for us. But Philemon communicates a message in addition to that that's important here, and that is that orthopraxy matters. The practice of orthodox faith, putting into practice the principles of the gospel, is just as important as believing the right things. It matters that we put the gospel on display It matters that we live as Jesus would live in the middle of a pandemic. But the brilliance of Paul is not just what Paul has to say. It's how Paul chooses to say it. And this is where I, I want us to turn to the book of Philemon. And I want us to look at exactly what this letter says and how he communicates to Philemon this revolutionary truth that's going to cost him a lot if he follows Paul's advice. Paul addresses this, though, first. If you have your finger there, still in Colossians. In Colossians 4, verses 2 through 6. And I want you to listen to this, and then I want you to hear how he puts it into practice in the letter that follows, that we'll read in just a moment. Colossians 4, verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders, make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. For many years, Christians have been content with preaching the truth to unbelievers. And it wasn't so important how we packaged that truth. It just mattered often that the truth was delivered. But listen to what Paul says. He says, we should proclaim the gospel clearly, truly, but we should proclaim it wisely with outsiders. We deliver our message full of grace, salted with saltiness, seasoned with salt. Paul models this well when he writes this letter to Philemon. Paul has a hard truth that he wants Philemon to hear, to understand. And ultimately, he believes Philemon should see Onesimus as a brother rather than a slave. But that's going to come at a cost to Philemon for him to see it. So I want you to notice how Paul delivers this message. Again, from the book of Philemon 1. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker. And to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remembered you in my prayers. Because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Now a couple things to notice here in the verse, seven verses. This is the only letter where Paul introduces himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. In most of his letters, he says, I'm an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm an apostle of God. But here in this letter, there's no mention of apostle. He mentions that he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now, why does Paul do this? I think it's important. I think it's his how he brings this message. Paul's not pulling rank here like he could. He could show his authority and his power to demand things of Philemon in this passage, but he doesn't. And I think we intuitively know why. Because Paul knows he cannot command Philemon to show love. He's going to have to allow the spirit to convict him. Watch how Paul sets up his request of Philemon in verse 6 with one key word. We read it earlier. He says, "I pray that your partnership with us in the in the faith." And the Greek word that's translated there in that verse is partnership is the word koinonia. We often think of it as community, but it's also this idea of partnership of sharing of mutual participation. It's when two or more people recognize that all follow all uh, recognize that uh, that they're there together, sharing together, and becoming partners, working together. Paul is saying faithfulness to Jesus means recognizing that all of his followers are equal partners who share together in the gift of God's love and grace. Whether you're slave or free, whether you're Jew and Gentile, you're equal partners. And here's what's important for us to understand. For Paul, the experience of koinonia among Jesus' followers is not just an idea that you assent to. For Paul, it's something that you do in your relationships, that you put on display when you worship together, that you show in your partnership for one another. So finally, Paul brings up the real subject of the letter, Onesimus, finally in verse 8. Let's keep reading. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appealed to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you. Now he has become useful, both to you and to me. I'm sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that I, he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do would not seem forced but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated for you uh, you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. I want you to notice how Paul makes this request. Paul does not pull the authority card. He doesn't command Philemon to forgive and release Onesimus. He's not going to order him for a, from a position of power. Now, why is that? Well, listen to this wise proverb back in Proverbs verse 27, verse 14. If anybody loudly blesses their neighbor early in the morning, it will be taken as a curse. There are two kinds of people in the world, right? Morning people and those who hate mourning. And I'm not a, a mourning person, and I agree with this proverb. See, the point of that proverb is this. The way you do something, when you bring a message and how you bring it, is just as important as the message you're delivering. That's what Paul's actually getting at here. He knows the danger of appealing to a system of power when he's trying to ask Philemon to get rid of the system of power himself. I mean, to do this differently would be like a mother spanking her kid and saying, we don't hit each other. See, the problem is that Philemon doesn't see Onesimus as a brother. He sees him as a subordinate. But in the kingdom of God, Philemon isn't a master and Onesimus isn't a slave. They're brothers in Christ Jesus. And Paul says, look, if you choose, you can take Onesimus back as more than a slave. He can be your brother in Christ. I love that language, don't you? Uh, You think a slave is the best thing he can be? He can be even more than that. He can be your brother in Christ, which begs the question. Paul may not have gotten to the end of where God wanted slavery to get to. I believe God wants all slaves to be freed, that abolition is the place that is his best place. But where were the preachers in the early story of America who were reading passages like this and defending slavery rather than reading these words and being the very ones that are at the forefront making sure it came to an end? And then Paul uses a word you might remember as his clincher. Philemon's, uh, Philemon 17 and 18. Listen to these words. So if you consider me a partner, Paul writes, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. Now, you may notice that word partner there. It's actually the same Greek word that we mentioned earlier in partnership. If you consider me a partner, If you consider me an equal person in the gospel, Paul is saying to Philemon, which Philemon definitely would have seen Paul as that. He says, then if that's the case, then you need to welcome Onesimus in the same way. As if he were me. And if he owes you anything, charge it to me. Here's my credit card. This is the heart of Paul's gospel message. This is the center of what the church has to offer the world. In Jesus, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting our sins against us. Jesus leveled the playing field. Paul is not above Philemon, and Philemon is not above Onesimus. Or in the words of that radically progressive idea in Galatians 3 and in Colossians 3 that I mentioned earlier, for those who are baptized into Christ, there is no, neither Jew nor Gentile, slave or free there, nor is there male or female, for we are all one. You were all one in Christ Jesus. I'm so glad that the early church decided to keep these 25 verses in the Bible, aren't you? Unfortunately, one of the saddest parts of this letter is how it was used by uh, those in favor of slavery to actually keep the practice going. There were preachers that used this letter, the letter of Philemon, to say, well, see, Paul sins." Onesimus back, I guess it's okay to keep doing what he's doing. He doesn't command him to get rid of him. And there are those household codes that talk about slaves, obey your masters. Surely Paul wasn't really about this. Actually, Scripture defends the practice. And there were slave owners in the Deep South who used this letter to defend the practice that they engaged in. And there were preachers who defended slavery because there wasn't a clear book, chapter, and verse that clearly supported the idea of abolition. But if you listen to Paul's words closely, Written as a prisoner himself, Paul is sparking a revolution and he's lighting fire to a stick of dynamite that one day is going to change the world forever in revolution. In April of 1963, there was another prisoner who was stuck, quarantined for other reasons, who penned a letter to the white church. It was Martin Luther King Jr., who's in a jail cell in Birmingham, and he writes a letter from a Birmingham jail. I want to read some of his words to us because I think they're prophetic words written in under house arrest that sparked revolution and change that I hope we continue to believe and work with in the days to come. He writes, There was a time when the church was very powerful. and The time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Whenever the early Christians entered a town, the people in power became disturbed and immediately sought to convict the Christians for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But the Christians pressed on in the conviction that they were a colony of heaven, called to obey God rather than man. Small in number, they were big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. Are their effort and example, they brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide and gladiatorial contests. Things are different now. So often, the contemporary church is a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. So often, it is an arch defender of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silent and often vocal sanction of things As they are. So that's the question I think we ought to pose today in the same way. Is the church a thermometer that kind of reflects the culture around it? Or is the church a thermostat that actually brings change in light of what the kingdom of God is trying to do in the world? See, this letter, Philemon, the shortest of all of Paul's writings that we possess, gives evidence of something revolutionary that was brewing in the Roman Empire around 60 A.D., And if we had no other first century evidence for the movement that came to be called Christianity, there's no other evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this letter should make us think again. Because something's going on here. Something is different. People don't just say this kind of thing. Not in those days. That isn't how the world works. A new way of life is being attempted and written into existence by Paul. This little community of people looks at things in a new way. They're trying a new path because the Romans didn't refer to slaves as brothers. But in the rare moments when we bid in our best, we're all brothers and sisters. At least that's what a guy named Paul wrote down while he was stuck in a house somewhere. And that makes me wonder, how could a church spread out across our county, across our country, across the world, What might the gospel ask us to dream out? What letters or books should be written today? What plans should be put into place so that we can claim the very same? That in Christ Jesus, there's no longer Jew nor Gentile. There's no longer slave nor free. There's no longer male or female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. I don't know what God's stirring in your heart this morning in terms of pronouncing the good news of the gospel of Jesus, but it needs not just to be believed, it needs to be seen and put into action. And the church is the place where that can take place. So what letter needs to be written today? What kind of church needs to be reborn? Let's pray this morning. Father, I thank you for letters like Philemon that seem like sometimes humble words Words that don't demand authority from Paul to say anything that others must do. It's not actually how the gospel works at all. The gospel is always invitation. Jesus says to his friends, come follow me. Come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Come and follow me and I'll release your chains. Come and follow me. And slaves, they'll no longer be known as slaves. They'll be known as brothers so God, I pray today in the midst of whatever bondage, in the midst of whatever chains we may be sensing, maybe it's sin or maybe it's literal chains that are around the world that are holding people back, may the church be a movement that doesn't just speak of freedom in Christ, but shows and makes it happen so that people may reclaim the resurrection because of the gospel of our lives that's enacted. And so God, as we continue in our worship this morning and as we sing about the freedom that you give us in Christ... Would you help us to believe the words that we repeat again and again, that we're no longer slaves. We're brothers and sisters in Christ because of you. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray.
0: Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the Greenville Oaks Message Broadcast. We hope this message helps you to inspire people to follow Jesus because you're convinced, like we are, that following Jesus is the best way of life possible. We invite you to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. Discover more about the Greenville Oaks Church online at greenvilleoaks.org.